Good morning. Let's pray for our time together. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that each one of us think be pleasing in your sight for Christ's sake. Amen. At my last church in Deerfield, Illinois, before coming here, I was surprised one morning when our head pastor announced that he was retiring in the next 12 months. He shared with us how he had given this information to the elders about a year ago and how God was closing this chapter in his life, and together they started working on and planning for his departure. Well, just a few months later, the elders were excited to announce that they were offering this position to our associate pastor. Our associate pastor was a great leader, an excellent preacher. He lived a life of integrity, and he was a gentle shepherd, but he only had a few years of pastoral experience, and now he was being called to take up the reins. And this particular church has a rich history in the EFCA. To this day, it, it remains the church home of many important leaders and professors and pastors in our denomination. Even our very own Pastor Jeff Hines attended and served there eons ago. But I can't imagine what our associate pastor was feeling. What was he thinking? Did he feel prepared to take over? Did he feel prepared to take up the torch and carry on the mission? Well, we've all had experiences where we've had to take up the torch, where we've had to take over. Maybe you recently were promoted at work and now you oversee 20 employees who really liked the last boss. Or maybe recently you've taken over the role of caregiver in your family. Your parents did this for so long, but now you are caring for them. Or maybe in this season you've had to step up and cover for a small group or a Bible study or lead a ministry because someone had to quarantine for a couple weeks. We've all had to step up to the challenge. We've all had to take up the reins And each one of these missions and tasks require that we serve with excellence. Well, today in our passage, we are going to see the greatest handoff in history. We will see a succession which literally has eternity on the line. Jesus is about to depart from this world and the question arises, what happens next? What's the next phase? Jesus accomplished so much. He raised expectations so high. How does this continue forward? What will the fate of Christianity be as Jesus leaves behind a small band of followers? Well, today we're going to be in Acts 1. But before I read our text, let's set the scene. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this book of Acts. And I'm sure you remember this is not his first rodeo. This is the gospel writer, Luke. And he wrote this book, Acts, to be the sequel. Luke Acts is one unified work. And Luke gives us the big idea of the whole sequel in the very first line. His first book, his gospel, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And directly implied is that the sequel, Acts, is about everything that Jesus will continue to do and teach. 
So whatever this next phase in God's plan is, whatever this next chapter, whatever the fate of Christianity will be in this small band of followers, it will be all about what Jesus continues to do in the world. Jesus' work doesn't end in the last chapter of Luke. Rather, Jesus is the only character in the next 28 chapters in the book of Acts to unite the plot from beginning to end. Well, Luke gives us two important background details before he gets started. First, Jesus proved that he had been raised from the dead. This is the first important background information for Luke. Jesus proved to the disciples that he'd been raised back to life. He proved to his disciples convincingly and decisively that he was alive. He spent time with them. He ate with them. He drank with them. Jesus is alive and there was proof. This is important because the Christian faith is not simply one about morals and ethics or spiritual niceties which float above the physical or events and thoughts which are detached from real history. No, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus from Nazareth in a little city named Jerusalem was executed on a Roman cross, but he was raised back to life. The second important background information that Luke gives us to set the scene is what Jesus was teaching his disciples about. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And this is the second important background information for Luke because it ties us back to his gospel. Luke mentions the kingdom of God 32 times in the gospel. In the Bible, the kingdom of God is the good news. The good news, the announcement, the gospel is the announcement of God's reign and rule in the world. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, announcing that he was restoring God's reign in the world through forgiveness and love. And now he invites people to come under God's reign by following him. And this reign, this kingdom of God, doesn't look like anything we could have guessed. It's an upside-down kingdom where the last are first, where the meek are exalted, where we conquer our enemies through forgiveness and love, where our very own king was exalted and lifted high on a Roman cross. Jesus was raised from the dead, and it proved that what he announced about the kingdom of God is true. And so as we turn to our text in Acts 1, 1 through 11 today, we're going to read about the next chapter in God's plan, the next phase. We will see what the fate of Christianity is in this small band of followers. And we'll also see two ways that Jesus continues to work in the world. We will see two ways that Jesus plans to continue working in this world, to continue doing and teaching. Let's read Acts 1. 1 through 5 together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he has said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The first way that Jesus will continue to work in the world is by the Holy Spirit. The first way that Jesus will continue to do and teach in the world will be through the Holy Spirit. Maybe it wasn't the same back in this time, but one thing that proves difficult for human beings in our culture is this idea of waiting. Jesus just told the disciples to wait, and nobody enjoys waiting, especially for something great. Our culture has wired us to expect instant gratification. For example, just this week I saw a commercial where Verizon was announcing their new 5G network, and an actress in the commercial said, wow, I just downloaded a movie in 30 seconds. That's fast. But it made me wonder, how long will it be until 30 seconds is too long? We have instant movie streaming. We have fast food drive throughs We have free two-day shipping. We can pull up to a grocery store and have groceries put immediately into our car. Waiting can be hard. And I know if I was in the disciples' sandals... It would be difficult for me to wait. Jesus was just raised from the dead. The kingdom of God has been announced. The greatest rescue plan in history is underway. And Jesus tells them to wait. But there's a good reason why the disciples must wait. Jesus tells them they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. What will happen next cannot be done yet. What Jesus has commanded his disciples to do cannot be carried out yet. This next phase in God's plan cannot be done until the Holy Spirit arrives. It can't be done without him. And Jesus says this will not take place many days from now. The Father had promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent. And Jesus reminds his disciples what he already taught them about this. He's already taught them on this topic. There's a difference between John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism they soon would receive in the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but they would soon be baptized in the Holy Spirit This is what John the Baptist himself said in Luke 3.16. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance and preparation. It prepared the participant by telling them to turn from their sin. It prepared the Jews that their Messiah was arriving. It prepared the participant for the very arrival of God and a new era in redemptive history. John's baptism was preparing the way of the Lord. It was making his paths straight for the time when the salvation of God would be seen by all flesh. How amazing and exciting, but what Jesus tells his disciples that they're waiting for is far greater. What they're waiting for is for something that has never happened before, for for something that was previously unavailable. They're awaiting the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. 
the sign that the messianic age had come, the beginning of a new era of salvation. It's been inaugurated. It will be inaugurated by the Holy Spirit to the fulfillment of Scripture. The coming Holy Spirit is the first way that Jesus will continue to work in the world. Luke tells us that whatever this new phase looks like, whatever this next chapter of Christianity is, it will be done by the Spirit. And the mention of the Holy Spirit coming would have brought expectation and excitement to the disciples. The Old Testament Jewish scriptures spoke about the time, the end time when the Spirit would come. And they knew that this would be the long-awaited messianic age. But they were confused on what it would look like. They knew that when the Holy Spirit came, there would be power, but they didn't understand what the power would be for. And you can see their misunderstanding as we continue in our passage. You'll see their misunderstanding as we continue at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. At the end of Jesus' time with the disciples, he has in mind the end of the earth and the kingdom of God, but the disciples ask about the kingdom of Israel. He has in mind the kingdom of God, which will transform individuals and entire cultures, where people will come to live under the reign of God by following King Jesus. And the disciples ask about their own nation. 2,000 years later, this is still a problematic way of thinking for God's people. But it would be easy for us to be down on the disciples. I know when I read the New Testament, there are times where I think to myself, how do they not get it yet? Jesus has made it so clear. How do they not understand? But I need to remind myself that the disciples were simply thinking like any good first century Messiah-waiting Jew would. They were simply thinking like any first century Messiah-waiting Jew would. Because when Jesus mentioned the Holy Spirit, it would have brought to mind the words of the prophets. In Ezekiel 36, the time when God would gather his people to their own land is the time when he put a new heart and a new spirit within them. In Isaiah 11, the time that Messiah would come and the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him is the same time when God would reach out his hand and recover the remnant of his people from the nations. And in Joel 2, a passage which Peter quotes in the next chapter, when the Holy Spirit arrives, in Joel 2, the day of the Lord is the time when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And it's also the time that God would restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. 
So for any Jew awaiting the Messiah, awaiting the end time when God's spirit would be poured out on all flesh, the age of salvation, they would expect it to mark victory for Israel in a geopolitical way. And so we hear this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I can't help but think that there was a hint of disappointment in Jesus' voice. He's already told them that times and seasons are not to concern them, that these details belong only to his Father. And so with a note of contrast, Jesus gives them a new aspiration and the second way that he will continue to work in the world. The power that they will receive when the Holy Spirit arrives is not for the kingdom of Israel, but for the people of God, the church. The power they will receive will help them be witnesses in the world. And through their witness, Jesus will build his church. Their witness is the second way that Jesus plans to work in the world. And just as you and I think about witnesses in a courtroom setting, the disciples are meant to establish the facts by everything they've observed. The disciples have seen with their own eyes the life, the teaching, the death, and now the resurrection of the Messiah. And their job is to testify to all that they've seen, to be a witness to it all, to share their eyewitness testimony and account with the whole world. This is why Judas's replacement in our next passage needed to have seen it all, He needed to be a witness. It says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. The aspiration that Jesus gives his disciples before leaving is to testify to the world about everything that God began to do through him. The mission that Jesus leaves in the hand of this small band of followers is huge. It's a global project. And so at this point, it may have made more sense why they needed to wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when the Spirit arrives, they will receive power. This task is monumental. They would need help, and God would not leave the disciples powerless to carry this message out to the end of the earth. When the Spirit would arrive, they would receive power for effective gospel proclamation. Power over Satan and demonic forces. Power over victory over sin. All so that they may have a more effective witness in ministry in the world. So we now know the second way that Jesus will work in the world through the witness of his disciples but he also tells us where we need to witness. He tells his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For you and I, this might sound something like this. Be witnesses in central Wisconsin, in all 50 states, and to the end of the corners of the globe. Not only will this message move out geographically, but it's going to transcend ethnic and cultural borders. The good news of the kingdom will redefine what the people of God even looks like. And the disciples are specifically to be witnesses to the resurrection because the resurrection proves that who Jesus claimed to be 
is the truth. Who God claimed Jesus to be by raising him from the dead is now who the disciples will proclaim him to be empowered by the Spirit. Who God claimed Jesus to be by raising him from the dead is now who the disciples will proclaim him to be empowered by the Spirit. And this is what happens in the rest of the book of Acts. As the disciples move out to the end of the earth, announcing the good news and inviting people to come live under the reign of God, to be citizens of a new kingdom by following King Jesus. This is their mega mission. These were their marching orders. These are our marching orders. And this is how Jesus continues to work in the world by empowering disciples by the Spirit to be witnesses to everyone. Well, if I was one of the disciples at this point, maybe, just maybe, I could swallow all this. Jesus asked me to wait, that's easy enough, to wait for the Spirit who would give me power to be a witness to the end of the earth. Okay, that's, that's a big deal. But I guess I would have the power when the Spirit arrives. That helps. And this is Jesus' continuing work in the world. That also helps. Well, I guess there's just one thing left. Jesus, let's take the short walk down from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem and wait, just like you told us to. Let's wait together. But what happens next leaves the disciples dazed and stargazing. Right before their very eyes, Jesus was lifted up from their sight and hidden by a cloud. What a moment. They would not be walking back with Jesus to wait. Jesus left them. The mega mission lies before them and the, the help of the Holy Spirit hasn't even arrived yet. It may be kind of like how new parents feel when they bring their new baby home for the first time. The doctors and nurses gave them instructions and directions on how to care for this new little life, but now they've been discharged and the shock of caring for this new child settles in. But Jesus was not abandoning his disciples, nor was he leaving them without help. Jesus was being exalted to the right hand of the Father. He was being given executive control in God's kingdom. Jesus was being enthroned and he will continue to direct the mission from heaven. And though occasionally Jesus will appear on earth to people to direct his intentions, in this next phase of God's plan, he most frequently will operate through the Holy Spirit, empowering his witnesses to be witnesses in the world. And this is where we discover our big idea from the text today. Jesus continues to work in the world through Spirit-empowered witness. Jesus continues to work in the world through Spirit-empowered witness. And this big idea from our text, it ought to lead us to practical life change. It ought to lead us to practical life application. So may I suggest two ways that we can apply this big idea from our text today. First, we ought to be active witnesses. We are called to be active witnesses in the world. The day is gone, at least in the United States, where all we had to do was invite people to church to be an effective witness. 
50 or 60 years ago, it was culturally advantageous to be a member in a church. And so people would join for the social and cultural benefits. And in doing, they would come under the teaching of Scripture, and many were saved. A generation or two ago, there was a little more room to be passive witnesses. But in our day and age, we will fail to have the kingdom impact that God desires from us if we are not active witnesses to those around us. One way that I did this when I was in seminary down by Chicago is I started a Bible study with some of my coworkers. I worked part-time at Best Buy and I spent some time cultivating real friendships. And I started inviting my friends to talk about faith and life at Buffalo Wild Wings. And some people never took me up on the offer, though I offered it many times. But some did. Some came only once, others came sporadically, but three guys came nearly every week. Sure, there were weeks where I didn't want to take the time or weeks where I would have rather been somewhere else, but one day at work, a supervisor came up to me and said, Adam, it's been one year since I started doing Bible studies with you at Buffalo Wild Wings. I know because my Bible app congratulated me on reading the Bible every day for one year. And it was that first night at Buffalo Wild Wings that I downloaded the Bible app. Not one of the people who I invited to this study would have been open to coming to church with me at first. It took me going outside of my Jerusalem to meet my friends where they were so that I could be an active witness in the life of my friends. Maybe for you, you host a small group. And maybe you could consider opening up your small group that meets in your home to outsiders. Encourage your group members to invite their coworkers, their family members, or friends who don't know Christ yet. It may feel like a less threatening environment to them than church does at first. And if your group gets too big, split into two groups. Praise the Lord. You could get involved in a club or organization around one of your hobbies. You could intentionally build relationships and be an active witness around something you enjoy doing. So maybe join a gun club, a bowling league, a, a book club, or a sports team. There are many bridges we can use to be active witnesses. Another way is to write down and practice sharing your testimony. Think about the time when God got a hold of your life, that he brought you to the end of yourself and the day when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Practice it, write it down, and, and prepare a 30-second version, a two-minute version, and a five-minute version. That way, when you feel led by the Spirit to share the reason for the hope that you have, you'll be ready to do so. There are a lot of ways that we can be active witnesses in the world around us. We could go on a short-term mission trip. We could support missionaries financially, emotionally, and spiritually. We could volunteer and serve in our communities the whole time being ready to share the reason for why we work, why we serve, and why we love others because he first loved us. Friends, we must not be content to sit in our own little Jerusalem only. We are called to make disciples of all nations in our goings, baptizing them, teaching them, knowing that Jesus desires to continue his work in the world through us. So friends, let's be active witnesses for the name of Jesus Christ 
in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let's be active witnesses. The second practical way that I think we can apply this text to our lives is to remember that this is not our work, this is not our strength. This mission that we're called to do isn't ultimately our mission, and we can't do it by our own power. Yes, like the disciples, we are to be witnesses on the offensive, not on the bench, but out sharing and witnessing to those near and far. But remember, this is what Jesus continues to do and teach through us by the empowering presence of the Spirit. This mission is big. It's way too big for us. But that's okay. It's Jesus' mission, and he chooses to do it in and through us by his Spirit. And sometimes I think we forget this. We live in a driven culture. Productivity is still a very high value for many Americans. We like to do, do, do. And so let me ask, are there any places in our church or in our own lives where there's just too much ministry in our ministries? Here's what this sometimes looks like in my own life. I'll arrive with a small group to rake leaves or move furniture, and I get annoyed when we spend too much time praying. Because we've got work to do. We've got ministry to accomplish. There are many ways that that this may take form in our lives. Maybe we're teaching our kids the truth of Scripture or leading a Bible study, but we fail to make the time to sit under God's Word ourselves. And so we neglect being filled by the Spirit-inspired Scriptures and we pour out of empty vessels. Maybe we can see the, the evil desires and motivations of the hearts of those people closest to us, but we fail to let the Holy Spirit shine his convicting light around in the dark corners of our own life. Or maybe we fail to see others through the mind and through the eyes of Christ, and so we don't take to the time to think of others who need the care of Christ, who need the ministry of grace in their life. And so when we serve others, when we visit loved ones in nursing homes, when we mentor someone over a cup of coffee or send greeting cards or thank you cards, we're not thinking of how Jesus is using us to care for others, but rather we're thinking of tasks to check off. We don't think of souls in need of the ministry of grace, but objects to accomplish. Friends, we have all been called to the continuing work of Jesus Christ through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. This is his work. This is his strength. And when we try to run out in front of God, we find ourselves in a very dangerous place. When we are trying to do kingdom work, when we're on mission without being in step with the Spirit, then it's not Jesus building his kingdom through us, but rather we turn to create our own puny little kingdoms by our own strength. It's a dangerous place to not be in step with the Spirit because there's a day coming when Jesus will return from heaven and he will finish all that he began to do. Until then, we need to continually put ourselves under the empowering presence of the Spirit because Jesus has invited us, he's invited you and me to continue his work through Spirit-empowered witness.
May we all be a church of active witnesses who witness by his power. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your son Jesus continues to work in this world, and we are so humbled that he chooses to work through us by the power of the Spirit. God, I pray that we would be active witnesses to those in our circles of influence, that we would reach many for the gospel, and that hearts would be changed, that workplaces would be changed, families would be changed, friend circles would be changed to the glory, to your glory. And Father, I pray that you would saturate us in the Holy Spirit, that we would receive the power that we need to carry out this mission. God, we know we can't do it by our own strength, and so we ask for your help, Lord, to accomplish your work as we go out, teaching all of those that we come in contact with about the wonderful kingdom that we can become citizens of. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.